discussion with Dr. Farid Kolaku. Good evening and welcome to In Session with Dr. Fadi Tolakwi. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tolakwi, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so you can call in with any questions related to clinical psychology, including any psychological or emotional issues, parenting issues, and relationship issues as well. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram, or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or to suggest topics for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and free podcast on iTunes. Again, our studio number is 310-441-0555. Before I do the summary of the book from this past week, the book for this week is Quiet by Susan Cain. Quiet. The Power of Introverts in a World that Can't Stop Talking. I started reading it today very briefly, and it actually seems very interesting. Um, But looking at how we tend to live in a world now that favors extroverts, and how actually introverts um, can offer us a lot, and also, bottom line, everyone should just be themselves and not have to be a particular way. So it seems like an interesting read. I haven't read it before, so it's going to be my first time, but hopefully others will join me in reading Quiet by Susan Cain. But the book for this past week that I'll talk about tonight is probably my favorite book of all time, and that is The Art of Loving by Eric Fromm. This is probably the, I don't know, maybe sixth time I've read this book, and every time I get a lot out of it. And in some ways, Um, it's like visiting an old friend when I read it, uh, again now. And I really enjoyed reading this book, uh, for this, uh, this, I don't know how many times it's been, but I really did enjoy it because it has so much packed into it. And I was just looking over some of my notes and other things I've thought about or written about the book. It's just over a hundred pages and even they're short pages, but there's so much in it that he does cover. Um, and I'll just do a brief summary today, which won't do it justice, of course, um, but I, I definitely talked about it before and we'll talk about it some more because it's a book that's definitely uh, impacted me greatly. And to me, he's one of the greatest thinkers um, that I've been influenced by. So I really enjoyed this book and likely closer to the end of the year, I'll do another book from him um, for the book of the week. So in The Art of Loving... This was one of the first books that really was a, a a book that was devoted to love in a scientific sense or approach from a scientific standpoint, um, and it was published in 1956, so that's just over 60 years ago. And he was looking at love, something that sometimes we don't think we should talk about in a scientific way, or that's something more of an emotional thing, or for poets or singers to write or sing about. Um, but he was talking about it very seriously. And I think that's one of the main points of the book that he brings up early is that we have to take love very seriously and approach it as an art, which I'll talk about um, in a little bit. But he does express so much about what uh, was, I'm sure, true then 60 years ago, but very true now about how people tend to approach love 
and some myths and misconceptions we have that mislead us in the process of what we think we're supposed to do to quote-unquote find love. So he talks about a few ways, a few problems that we have. One is that most people see the problem of love primarily of that of being loved rather that than that of loving or developing one's capacity to love. So most people are looking for a relationship because they want someone to love them. They want to feel good when someone loves them, not thinking about how good are they at being loving to someone else. So in essence, we're looking to take rather than to give. So to receive rather than to give, and that itself is a problem. So we're waiting to be loved, not to love. Secondly, he says a big problem we have is that we think the problem of love is in the problem of an object, not a problem of a faculty. So basically what most people think, and if you ask people about their love life, what do they say? They're like, oh, I can't find a new one. Or they think the only issue is to find the right person, not to actually look at themselves and develop themselves in their own capacity to love. So we're focused on finding someone rather than developing ourselves. Later in the book, this is what I'm sharing right now is from the beginning of the book, but he shares this really almost funny analogy, but it's like someone saying, I want to be a great painter, but rather than focusing on developing their art as a painter, um, they're saying, no, once I just find the right object to paint, I'll paint something very beautiful, which doesn't make sense. And that's what many people do when it comes to love. They think once I find the right object or person to love and fall in love with, oh, I'll just be a wonderful lover and it'll be a great relationship. But that's really not the way it works. And he's saying here we have to focus on the art of loving yourself. So what does that mean by art? He says we should approach loving or the art of loving just like we would any art, which means first we have to do two parts, which is one, the theory, we have to study it, and then also the practice of it. So we have to study it, and we also have to practice it. And lastly, he said, has has to become something of an ultimate concern, a matter of ultimate concern. If you want to be good at anything, you have to devote yourself to it. So when it comes to being loving people or to love, we have to invest time into developing that faculty within ourselves. Again, something that most people don't think about when it comes to to their love life or love in general, because this book is not just about love in the sense of romantic love, although a lot is about that, but that in the possibility or the uh, potential we have to become loving individuals. Not only that, he says that to really love one person, you have to love all people. You have to develop love for everyone. And in that person that you even love, you must love them for all people that are within them, essentially, or that oneness that we all share. So to feel that you're in love because you love one person and no one else, that's not love. That's some kind of fusion or a symbiosis that you're having with that person. Sometimes people even can brag about that. Oh, my partner is actually not very nice to other people, but loves me so much and is so good to me. And we think that's some kind of sign of how special or unique we are. When in reality, it just means they're giving you that love at this time because you serve some kind of purpose. You're a means to an end for them. They want to either have you or uh, show you off or just tick some check in their life of, okay, now I have a partner, but almost definitely you're going to see that what looked like love go away because it was not 
genuine. It was not really something there. He also talks about how love is not something passive, which is why he says he doesn't like the falling in love or falling for someone. He prefers to say you're standing in love. It's something active. Love is an activity, as he puts it. And he also says that activity doesn't mean you're constantly doing something in the way that we think of activity, but that you're in somehow always um, connected to your partner, that you are giving love to your partner all the time, not necessarily just by doing things, but in how you are being with that person. I also enjoy his description when he talks about giving versus receiving. And he talks about how we often think about, or traditionally you'll hear people say, giving is better than receiving because giving is painful and that makes it more noble or in some way better. So I'm a good person because I gave because that's a sacrifice and doesn't feel good. That's traditionally how we think of it. But he says that giving is actually the highest expression of potency. In the very act of giving, I experience my strength, my wealth, my power. And so he says that itself giving is something that will give us exquisite joy. Uh, he also says, not he who has much is rich, but he who gives much. So it's not about how much you have, it's about how much you give. That's what's really going to make you rich or give you that genuine wealth is how much you give. Giving itself feels good, uh, which I think is something very, very important, something that's very often overlooked or the way we look at it is wrong. And so to give is actually a good feeling, not because we're suffering, but because you actually feel good in giving. Um, he talks about different types of love, and he, that's also a very interesting description. Um, in motherly love, he makes a few points that I find very, very interesting, and I see it as important to look at. He describes how many mothers can easily feel good about being a mom and be good at being a mom when their child is so dependent in them, on them. And it can be very easy for them to be very loving and to show them love and to give them everything they need. But however, for many mothers, once the child is becoming uh, independent of them, this is where they might struggle. So she says, he says, the very essence of a motherly love is to care for the child's growth. And that means to want the child's separation from herself to want separation. And that's what can be very hard for mothers and, of course, fathers as well, that we try to keep our children dependent on us because we don't want to lose them, which, of course, shows that our love was not a genuine love for the growth of the child, but actually a love of symbiosis to keep someone close and connected to us, to fill some kind of emptiness, to take us away from our own feeling of aloneness. So in this sense, he's saying you must actually want the child's separation, love it in such a way that it can actually go away from you. He also talks about how a mother should be happy. A mother's love for life is as infectious as her anxiety. And also that the, a mother who is miserable and unhappy is going to make her children unhappy. And so you want to make them feel good to be alive. And if you're suffering... And uh, lots of mothers, but also lots of Iranian mothers, think that they're being a good mom if they're suffering, if they're a martyr for their children. He says that this is actually not something good at all. You're not making anyone happy uh, or making them feel good by suffering in front of them. You must show them that you're happy to be alive, that you love life, uh, 
and love the world. He also does a very interesting explanation looking at the difference between selfishness and self-love, which to some people might be hard to distinguish or we think they might be the same thing. Even to this day, you hear people when they talk of someone who is egotistical or narcissistic or selfish, they say, oh, that person loves themselves too much. That's how we hear it. But he says that selfishness and self-love, far from being identical, are actually opposites. The selfish person does not love himself too much, but too little. In fact, he hates himself. And that's very interesting when we think that generally we assume that someone who's very selfish and seems to have everything be about them, they must really love themselves too much. You hear it all the time. People say, uh, someone who's a narcissist, oh, he loves himself too much or she loves himself herself too much when in fact he's letting us know, no, they don't actually love themselves too much. They hate themselves. In essence, they're so empty. They're trying to fill up everything they can or take everything they can to fill themselves up because they feel so empty. Something is lacking within them. And so what we want to do is genuine self-love for myself. And as he puts it, we should love all people. And if I love all people, then of course I should love myself as well. And so I think he makes a very good argument and a good point about this notion that self-love has gotten a bad rap. And we actually even see it to this day where people say it's your ego or you shouldn't be focused on yourself. Now, of course, we can overly focus in our, on ourselves, but to have genuine love for ourselves is very important and necessary to love other people. As he says, it is true that selfish persons are incapable of loving others, but they are not capable of loving themselves either. So we really do have to love ourselves first before we can actually love other people. He also explains various forms of love that seem like love, or he calls them pseudo-love, but really are not that at all. Um, people sometimes think that genuine love is when two people are so head over heels that they're going crazy and being you know even stupid or irrational in how they act that's how you know you're in love but that's not really love he talks about idolatrous love basically when we idolize our partner or idealize your partner and see them as something that is not true and in some way try to fuse with that larger than life or perfect figure which is not real that's not real love uh, real love means that you actually see the other person completely as they are and try to see them for who they are and what they are. He also mentions that in genuine love, it doesn't mean that you don't have conflict. Something that I always like to say that couples, it's not about um, if you fight, it's how you fight, because you need to have arguments and disagreements. And he says, there is an illusion that love means necessarily the absence of conflict. Real conflicts between two people, those which do not serve to cover up or project, but which are experienced on the deep level of inner reality to which they belong, are not destructive. They lead to clarification. They produce a catharsis from which both persons emerge with more knowledge and strength. And I've seen it myself and with couples who I've worked with in therapy or even experienced myself, whether it's in a romantic relationship or in friendships, that when you have a disagreement or an argument, and both sides communicate clearly and do not try to hurt each other, but genuinely try to express themselves and understand one another, uh, it makes the relationship stronger and it makes your feeling for the other person and feelings for the other person stronger as well. So this idea that uh, true love 
is an absence of conflict. He says that's not true. That's an illusion. And we have to know that we have to be open and express those types of things, those feelings that we have. Um, you know, what I also think is interesting is he talks about, he doesn't use the word meditation, but he talks a lot about mindfulness and meditation. And he even describes a practice, which is very much like meditation of trying to clear your mind of anything and to actually just be with yourself, something that he says most of us struggle with. He actually says, and I quote, paradoxically, the ability to be alone is the condition for the ability to love. So it is interesting that we think of love as something you do with someone else, but he says that if you can't be alone by yourself, then you actually can't love someone else. You need to be able to be alone by yourself. And he also talks about how multitasking is something that we think of as a good thing, especially in today's society and even back then, this idea that you can be so quote-unquote productive if you're doing more than one thing. But he says that this is not a good thing and instead we should be able to concentrate on doing one thing at a time. And when I read some things about him uh, that biographers or people that knew him wrote, they said that when you spoke with him, with Eric Fromm, you would feel like he would look into your eyes so deeply it would almost be overwhelming but he was so present with you. And that's something we should all strive towards to be that way with the people that are around us, to be so focused on them, to look at them and really take them in, not in a judgmental way. And actually it said you never felt judged by him, but you felt that he was really looking at you and seeing you completely for who you are, which I think it shows that he practiced this art and he practiced these things, not just preached them. Um, but it's something we can keep in mind and strive towards to be so focused and have our concentration on the person you are communicating with that they feel you fully there with them. Um, I won't get to talk about everything that the book covers, even though, like I said, it's a shorter book, but still uh, it is an incredibly deep book. Um, even he says a quote that I really like related to this issue of being focused on what you're doing, and he says something that many people experience, the paradoxical situation with the vast number of people today is that they are half asleep when awake and half awake when asleep when they want to sleep. And I'm sure many people can relate to that, that when they're awake and in their days they're tired and can't seem to focus and concentrate, and then when they're trying to actually go to sleep, they can't sleep because their mind is racing and they're thinking about a lot of things showing that we're not actually focused on what we're supposed to be doing at the time. And because of that, we're never fully doing what we need to do. When we're awake, we're not even fully awake. And when we're trying to sleep, we can't go to sleep or are not fully asleep. So I'll wrap up now my you know summary this time of The Art of Loving. I say this time because I'm sure I'll talk about this book again and again. But it really is an incredible book. I recommend it to anyone. Thankfully, it's kind of short for someone who says they don't like to read, for example. Some people tell me that. Uh, it's just around 100 pages, so you can get it done in a couple hours. Uh, the Art of Loving by Eric Fromm, looking at how we should view love and also uh, how we even can view ourselves. I think he's very good at what the way he describes human beings and the struggles and the things we're facing, the challenges we face in today's society. I think he does an amazing job and really so much of what he says rings true, again, written 60 years ago, but today. So I hope if you haven't read it already, I already got a lot of responses from people who said this book has affected or changed their lives. But if you haven't read it, I hope you will. The Art of Loving by Eric Fromm. And again, the book for this week is Quiet by Susan Cain. All right, we reached our first commercial break. Studio number 310-441-0555. We'll be right back. 
Welcome back to In Session with Dr. Fadi Tulakwi. Let's go to a caller. Radio Hamra, you're on the air. Hello. Hi, thanks for calling. Hi, Dr. Hadakui. I just wanted to say thank you so much for the show. I feel like every time I listen to a session, all these light bulbs go off, and I'm just very appreciative. Oh, thank you very show. much. I appreciate that. Thank you. Um, my question today was how do you effectively communicate with a very traditional parent that could sometimes be a little sensitive and dramatic and stubborn at times? Okay. So I was wondering if you had any tips <laughs> on how to actually deal with them okay that's that, that's a that, that sounds like a hard person to deal with you said sensitive and um dramatic and you said traditional also and i'm assuming you're talking about yourself so maybe we can ask a bit about what's what's going on for you um how old are you i'm almost 30 in october okay almost 30 and then are you thinking of both of your parents or one of them in particular in particular, my father. Your father, okay. Mm -hmm. So when you're saying he's sensitive, what what do you mean he's sensitive about? Um, like every time we get into a conflict about something or like how he's dealing with a certain topic, he gets very sensitive in that he feels like he's being attacked or that he doesn't do anything right and that we're just like constantly criticizing him. Okay. When you say we, like my sisters and I. Okay. All right. Mm -hmm. So you have, you said sisters. So it's a couple of yeah. you. I have two younger sisters. Two younger sisters. Any brothers? No, just three girls. Okay. So it seems like you guys kind of team up on the poor guy. We try not to, but <laughs> sometimes it happens. Well, yeah. I'm sure it sometimes can happen because uh, since you use the word traditional, I'm sure sometimes uh, there's a generational and maybe cultural. Uh, difference that you guys have with him when it comes to looking at issues and he might see things a little differently. So all parents and their kids obviously have a generational difference, basically by definition. Um, mm -hmm. And that usually leads to some degree of conflict, intergenerational conflict. We're going to see things differently. Not only just see things differently, many times parents, they did things themselves when they were younger that they don't want their own kids now to do when they're kids and young adults so that there's that happening but then also for many children of immigrants or people who are immigrants themselves that came with their parents from another country like many Iranians who have traveled and moved to different countries they deal with a cultural difference that usually the children are going to acculturate more quickly so they're going to adopt the new culture more quickly than the parents do so of course there could be differences in how they view things based on traditional let's say iranian values versus the american or european or australian or wherever people tend to be wherever they are they're going to see okay. things differently because of that um so is that something you guys have is just you guys see things differently from him um yeah it's a little bit of that and it's like i guess yeah culturally but also in the sense of like in the past few years i've been actively trying to improve myself and mm -hmm. like doing a lot of like self-reflection and self-help books and meditation and traveling and trying to be a more open-minded person. And I feel like the parent-child roles, they kind of switched. Mm. So it's more of like we're criticizing him. He feels criticized because we're kind of telling him that he's doing things wrong. Like, for example, there was a show that you had um, previously about like overbearing parents, controlling parents, 
hindering their kids' self-growth and not allowing, like, their kids growing up later on and not being able to make um, decisions. Mm-hmm. And I really, um, like, resonated with that. But when I try and bring up this, this topic, it seems like I'm, like, blaming and criticizing him. Mm. And I don't want to come across that way. Like, I know that that's probably one of the factors as to why I'm a very indecisive person, but I don't want to be like, it's all your fault. Right. That's what, you know? So mm-hmm. it's like, how do I cross that bridge, like, heal yeah. that, but not blame him for it? So, yeah, yeah you know, that, that's, a good, that's a good question, you know, that you're bringing up. Because there's a few things that we also have to look like look at. As far as the, along with the generational and the cultural issues, of course, every individual has their own personality. Some are more defensive than others. And in general, Persian men, this is a stereotype, but as a Persian man, maybe I can say it more comfortably. Persian men tend to be more defensive and also slightly narcissistic, don't like to acknowledge mistakes or shortcomings in mm-hmm. any way but yeah. that's him and maybe so we have to keep in mind maybe you're dealing with a man who is that way but then of course since i'm on the phone with you and you're looking at yourself you have to think about okay how can i present things to him so that it doesn't turn into a fight every time or he doesn't it doesn't play our roles again where he feels attacked and he withdraws or attacks you back and then you feel like you don't even get anywhere and you may be like well what was the point of bringing it up anyway if it just turned into more of a fight than any kind of resolution so one thing you can do is you know maybe for example you heard the show i talked about that or you you said you're doing reflection and studying and you you start to recognize some things about your past and that could bring up some intense and maybe raw emotions because you haven't expressed them definitely and that's what usually happens yeah are it's very extreme like we'll either i'll just say okay dad whatever you say is right or i'll like blow up and get into fights and we don't talk for months right and always very extreme yeah which also you know that itself is a big issue i think most families iranian and otherwise but i definitely see it in our, our our culture they one don't deal with conflict well or they avoid it at any cost possible and related to that, we haven't had good modeling of how to express anger to family members. So typically what people observe is hold it in, hold it in, hold it in, avoid conflict, say it's okay, everything's fine. You can you know, deal with it on your own, and then they blow up. And so either way, it's bad. And then when we see anger, it looks ugly and bad, and we think, oh, see, anger is this gross emotion. I should just hide it at any cost but unfortunately we can't and it comes out one way or another so what i was going to say is that you know when you let's say have these aha moments or you're reading a book like oh this is what my parents did to me and you feel angry you feel hurt you know you have all this rush of emotions rather than going straight to your dad and saying dad i you know I, i figured this out about what you and mom did or what you did you might need to process those feelings a bit on your own first so Rather than going with to him with all that raw emotion and that intensity, you might need to focus on yourself processing it. If you go to therapy, talk about it there. Come to a place where you're at least a little bit more calm. Then go talk to him because there could be a very healing process in talking to him that I don't want to say you have to deal with it all on your own. But first, with the intensity of the emotion, you might need to, especially for anyone, but especially if your father is sensitive and defensive, uh, the way you were saying, 
he, you know, you have to just assume that it, as soon as you come at him with one of those kinds of statements of, let's say, you did this or you hurt me in this way or you're still hurting me in this way, to him, it's like you fired a bullet. And if you fire a bullet, you're going to get a war. So he's going to either become defensive or he's going to become offensive and attack you back. And you're just going to have a, a fight that only escalates and becomes worse. So if you can somehow present it, and it's possible no matter how you present it, if you bring up something he doesn't like, he might react to it. But we just want to improve or increase the chances that your conversation goes well, that you can somehow express your feelings and your thoughts and get something back from your father. I would say really try to deal with the emotions as much as you can on your own first, especially the raw emotions. So I'm not saying... You have to go up to him like a robot and pretend like you don't care about the issue. Of course you care. But you want to, as calmly as you can, present it because he is going to likely react if you're saying he's sensitive to any kind of expression you give of, of a strong emotion. And so the more smoothly you can bring it up to him and the more specific you can be, rather than like you've ruined my life or you've made life so difficult, but, you know, specific, uh, you know, I I've thought about some things and you know, even you can start with saying how you appreciate some things he's done for you throughout your life and you've been so grateful to have a father like him, but something came to your attention and you wanted to talk to him about it and then gently being you know, specific about, I felt that you and mom did this sometimes and it's really you know, hard and I just came to this realization. He might still react to that. So I'm not saying this is a magic formula that he's automatically going to respond well to. He might respond, you can tell him, you know, you did this yesterday, and even if he really did it, he'll just deny it. But that could help in the process. Well, yeah, that's the thing. It's like, how do you communicate with somebody that's not even open to mm. listening? Like, I yeah. thought I could, like, subliminally brainwash him and, like, <laughs> put on one of your shows in the car with him, and I could see him physically getting uncomfortable in mm. the car, like, shifting. Like, he just doesn't want to face it, and he's just very... Yeah. Um, like, okay, there's no problems, everything's fine. So it's like, how do you even present things to somebody that's completely not open to facing themselves yeah. or anything else around them? That That's tough. And, you know, the, you know there's a, we can't force someone to face something about mm -hmm. them. You know, you can tell them anything about you, but to get yeah. him to accept or face anything about him, even if it involves you, that's tough, and it seems like you really are trying some jujitsu and ran different things to get him to that place. Um, but that makes it very him up to the conversation, yeah. you know, because I've never been this. I can't even when I do feel these emotions, I never go to him right away. And like, uh -huh. I, it's very hard for me to express my feelings to, to my father, so, which is likely because you didn't get great responses from him when you did, exactly. so you've learned to hold in. So, you know, it's interesting, yeah. it's like here in. The problem is within the problem. You know, it's like you're trying to bring up something, but the reason why it's hard to bring it up is because of what even caused the problem in the first place. You know, it's kind of, in some ways, a catch-22. You're trying to deal with a problem, but you can't bring it up because that, that's part of the problem. You know, hold on the line. Let's let's talk yeah. a bit after the break because uh, I don't want to, you know, because there's a lot, and I think a lot of people can relate to what you're going through. So let's talk a bit more after break, but thanks for the call. Thank you. All right. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Tulakwi. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Before the break, we're with a caller. Caller, are you still there? Yeah. All right. So you were talking about trying to talk to your father, who you described as 
uh, defensive and very sensitive and also dramatic. We didn't get to talk much about the dramatic part yet, um, but how that has, makes it difficult for you to talk to him about things, especially when it relates to his parenting or maybe things you feel like he did that have hurt or um, upset you throughout your life. Now, you know, we're dealing with someone, as you mentioned, very defensive, as you de you're, the way you're describing him. And we have to try to understand where he's coming from. Um, you know, someone who's defensive the, to the degree you're saying who can't acknowledge any shortcoming or fault, sometimes we can say there's an, a narcissism there. But if we look at what's underneath whatever is on that surface, is a person who is lacking in their own self-esteem or self-worth as a person, and sees that their value is in what they produce. Actually, Eric Fromm talks about that a lot in his, some of his writings and even in this book, The Art of Loving, but the way that we're almost like becoming commodities. So I'm only worth what I give or do or produce. Yeah. And if I make a mistake, if I don't do something, if I did something wrong, well, then I'm, un, uh, I'm unlovable and worthless because I'm only worth what I do and give and produce. So I don't want, I can't ever make a mistake. So they can cling so much. And I've seen people, they are just so blatantly making a mistake or did something wrong, but they cling to it or they even double down on their mistake because they can't tolerate that feeling of being wrong or doing something wrong or acknowledging wrongdoing. Where actually, I think a healthy person, and I can even do it myself today, can look back at their day when you know they're putting their head down on their pillow and not in a way of punishing themselves or beating themselves up, but should easily be able to say 20 or 30 things that I don't want to say they did wrong, but let's at least say they could have done better. Um, you know, I can even look back yeah. at this show and think there's so many things I could have said better. I could have selected this word when I saw my father earlier today. Could I have been even more kinder or conscientious or said this or that or with my clients done this or that? And again, not to beat myself up to say I'm bad, but actually to, to strive to be better. Because I know as good as I was today, I can love myself today. I still want to grow and advance myself. But I have to be able to look at myself genuinely and authentically and see I could be better. I could have done better. So unfortunately, many people, they don't want to take that approach. It's hard for most of us. We don't like to be told we are wrong or did something wrong, even if we don't consider ourselves defensive. But in your father's case, we have to understand where he's coming from. Whereas to acknowledge wrongdoing, it's not that he's doing it just in some selfish way, which is how it looks on the surface. It's to protect something because it's almost like his world is shattering if he sees it differently or if he says he did something wrong. Yeah, I, I definitely try and, you know, mm -hmm. be compassionate and understand where he's coming from. And I I do feel for him. There's a lot of like issues in his past that hmm. um, are probably contributing to how he is now. Right. But it's like, but then how do you move forward? Like, how do I move forward with my life? It's right. Like, yeah, you know, that that is it's tough. Still something that I need to heal in order to fix other yeah. relationships in my life. Because this is a very big. Um, it has a lot of influence sure. on other relationships in my life. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And I think maybe, uh, uh, you know, you mentioned something in the last segment about the parent-child roles being reversed. It seems like you're so concerned with his feelings in a way. Maybe you feel like you're being the parent now. Mm -hmm. um, exactly. And, you know, I, I definitely hope you keep trying. And mm -hmm. maybe also he's going to be trying in his own way of, of maybe coming to terms with acknowledging some things and, growing himself to the point where you can have those conversations you're hoping for. But one thing 
we have to sometimes accept is that the apologies that we want, or maybe even the apologies we sometimes deserve, we never get from those people that hurt us. Which Yeah, and I'm okay with that. It's sure. that I'm not seeking an apology. I just want to know how I can take the right steps towards healing the relationship. Mm. The relationship you have with your father? Yes. Because okay. I feel like a lot of those things, like, for example, like on another show you talked about, like, the helicopter parents mm-hmm. and, like, not giving their kids any privacy and, like, just going through their things, having them leave the door open, always saying that they had to do things because they say that, like, that was him, exactly. <laughs> and it's like, so how do I, how do I continue growing as a person, even though all of those things happen? Yeah. And, Are you living at home with him now? Pardon? Do you live with at home with him? No. Okay. But okay. We're very close. Like I see my family every weekend, and it's like I always see them. Good. Okay. So you you've created some of your own space. If they were not going to give it to you, it seems like you've mm-hmm. tried to create that, which is good. Um, but yeah, but the effects of that intrusive parenting are negative, and I'm sure, as you were mentioning, that's affecting you still. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, it would be nice to hear him acknowledge that. Or let me ask you this: What would you? In your kind of ideal conversation or interaction with him, what would you want to hear from him? Uh, that's a good one. Um, I, I want him to acknowledge that he has done those things, yes, mm-hmm. he's wrong about it, but I want him to also let me know how he's working on himself to change. Like, cause the conversation just goes to, yes, I know I did all those things wrong, like, I'm such a bad father, I'm just going to go away and leave you all alone and you'll all mm. be happy. That's how he That's what, uh-huh. It's right. never like, okay, I'm going to go, like, he'd never go to a therapist. He would never do something like that. Like, mm-hmm. he, he thinks that he's so damaged and he's like, the answer is I'll just go away and everyone will be happy without me. And it's mm. like very dramatic. It's just, yeah. And, and that's kind of what I was talking about before of the... Again, it's either I'm like the perfect dad who has done anything wrong or I'm just worthless scum. You'd be better off without me, which is not what you want. And that's the problem with that. The way he's acknowledging it, it doesn't really feel like much of an acknowledgement um, because also, again, here we're seeing something you mentioned before, because when he does that now, you obviously feel the need to then rescue him now. Like, no, dad, you're not. I'm sure you're not the worst dad in the world. You're not. We're not better off without you. We're not trying to say all those things. And then so you don't even, it doesn't become about your feelings or what you brought up anymore. It becomes about him and his feeling of worthlessness or him wanting fishing in a way for you to tell him he's actually good and to inflate him again. Yeah. Exactly. And it goes back to the parent-child relationship. Like, whereas when I was a younger girl, I idolized him. And Mm. now I'm, like, kind of not disgusted. Like, I pity him. But it's kind of like... That's not a good feeling. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's tough. You know, that's something that's another thing that you're in a way dealing with is uh, which which many people have to deal with is Mm -hmm. recognizing my parents weren't this idealized figure I had and bringing them back to earth. And then also seeing actually their own shortcomings or their weaknesses and even recognizing maybe I was parented by a child emotionally. And that can be tough. And and so what you might have to do, again, I hope you continue the conversation. So at some level, he's acknowledging something, not at all in a healthy way or in a way that allows for conversation and for a resolution. But there's some level. So I hope you keep trying. But you might get to the point where you recognize 
my father is is emotionally too underdeveloped or however you want to call it to have the kind of conversation I'd like. I think exactly. I deserve. So you, how do you move from that? Like from that point? Yeah. I mean, it's something that sometimes could even help people who've been in, who've had very difficult, uh, you know, even abusive childhoods is to understand their parent better. So it's not to condone or justify what they did, but even in understanding their history, sometimes you see where they were wounded and how they were hurting you not out of a place of lack of love or negative feelings, but from their own wounds. They were then unfortunately wounding you, passing that on, maybe in a different form, but passing that pain on to you. And it's not going to be the most satisfying, I would assume, but it could be all you get if he is not willing to engage in a conversation. I would say keep trying, let him know that it's not about you being... You're in, like I said, even somebody starting with some compliments to let him know how much you appreciate him, how grateful you are for whatever, you know, he's done and really being specific about that. But then saying, I still want us to be able to talk about us. You know, even you can say, I've, I've, I've made mistakes as a daughter and I try and I, you know, I just want us to be able to talk about things. He still might not be able to even tolerate that conversation. And then we have to just recognize he's, he's so fragile. And of course we can understand someone that fragile, unfortunately, hurting you maybe he was so anxious about being a good dad about doing things right that he did too much and he was intrusive and he was doing you know things that you didn't want him to do but that was him trying his best and sometimes that itself can be again not completely satisfying but give us an understanding of our pain it's not going to take it away but recognizing where he came from um because for him that is you know your desire that he works on himself is an acknowledgement of not being good enough. And maybe, and then he goes to the other extreme, I'm so damaged, I'm unfixable, or, you know, I can't be worked on, or I'm just better, you're better off without me. But that's a defense to him not wanting to face all the pain and face everything that's there. So when we've been hurt, you know, sometimes people think revenge is going to make them happy, not in your case, but in general. But we know what makes people feel the best is just an acknowledgement that we've been hurt, you know. You know, you can be driving and someone cuts you off. And if they don't acknowledge you and drive forward, you, you might get angry. If they just give you a little symbol with their hand, you know, a signal of, oh, sorry, that was kind of close. Usually I've had this experience myself. All of a sudden you just feel a little bit more calm. Like, oh, okay. You know, they saw what happened. I feel okay that they acknowledged the hurt. And that's all you want from your dad is just an acknowledgement of, you know, recognizing how he has hurt you and saying sorry about that. And also you're saying, which is part of a genuine apology that here are the ways I want to work on that to not do it again to you. In your yeah, case, it's also yeah. difficult to, yeah. to watch somebody make, like thinking that they're doing the right thing, but then it's just leading them towards a path further than where they could be in a way. Like his mm -hmm. controlling issue, like his way of, of loving is he thinks he needs to control everything and that mm -hmm. just pushes everybody further away. So it's mm -hmm. like, what he's trying to do to bring himself closer with the family is doing the opposite. Yeah. It's like you're just watching a disaster happen, like, you know, and yeah. can't... That's hard to watch, do. sure. I mean, that's a self-fulfilling prophecy right there, so afraid of not being alone that he might be pushing everyone away, as you're saying, unfortunately. Exactly. His way of coping with that is to actually push people away. And my guess is just how you're you're talking to me right now, you're, you've tried to bring up these issues to him but his responses are so extreme 
and doesn't allow a conversation to unfold or for it even to land for him, that, mm-hmm. you know, it just, it's hard to get to him. And I'm sure that's the part that hurts you because he's probably not hurting you the way he did when you were a kid, but now you're seeing him hurt. And exactly. that seems like it's hard for you, which I can understand. And as a daughter, I feel like I have to do something. I can't just say, okay, like, this is not just some random person in the street that I could just say, like, okay, I'll never see him ever again. Like, right. He's... I've, I've gone months without talking to him, and it's, it's painful. I can understand that. And, you know, we're, we're, I have to just about wrap up the show. But I'll say this. You know, he's not a... No, no, you. I've really enjoyed... I think this has been a very important conversation. Um, you know, he's not just a random person on the street, but at the same time, you know, you're not responsible for how he feels. And unfortunately, because of how it seems your family likely was, where there was too much involvement, uh, dependency, codependency, and people maybe a, a feeling of, I am responsible for how my family member feels. If they're sad, I have to fix them. I have to solve the problem. It's given you this feeling that you... Try. Well, try, you know, but try means, uh, you know, you're responsible for a certain degree. Just, okay, you try, but you're not responsible to fix it which is how you likely are feeling that if my dad's suffering, I'm supposed to fix it just like when you were a kid and he saw you suffering, he was doing too much and thinking it was his responsibility so that you weren't sad or weren't feeling what you were feeling. So, of course, you've adopted that mindset, too, of how you show love and how you relate to loved ones of taking on too much responsibility. You might um, benefit from the book if you haven't read it already. Maybe you have Codependent No More, but I recommend that for others who are listening. Codependent No More by Melody mm-hmm. Beatty. I might make that book of the week soon. Um, many okay. Persian families, I feel like almost all of them have codependency. Or we can say, as yeah. she talks about in the book, we all have codependency to a certain degree, but we're looking at how much. Because you might be feeling too much responsibility now for how he feels. And okay. you need to keep focusing on yourself and taking care of you and mm-hmm. continue your growth process, but not allow his pain and what he's going through to bring you back. I do have to wrap up, but, okay. you know, hopefully you'll call back I soon really and tell us some more about how's it going. I your insight. Thank you so much, Mr. Oh, I appreciate you calling. Have, Have a great night. night. Take thank care. You. All right. Thank you to our caller there and all the listeners and to Amir here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Talak. We have a wonderful night.